HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to your customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash why food. I'm your host, Valerie Lomas, and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about career changers, entrepreneurs, and innovators. But you know, really, this podcast is about people out here chasing our culinary dreams. Today, we have an amazing guest. We have Adrian Miller. He is a James Beard award-winning author. He is a food historian, and he is a former Stanford-educated attorney. Adrian, thank you for being here. Good to be with you. Thanks so much. I mean, okay, Adrian, it's, it has been such a week in food media and I have seen you and your writings. I've seen you in the Huffington Post. I saw an interview you did with BBC and this is all culminating as you are actually polishing up your manuscript for your book that's coming out next year called Black Smoke. How have you been able to kind of balance all of that? Because you have so many different competing priorities right now. And I definitely want to talk about your book, Black Smoke, and how super relevant it is right now about highlighting um, the contributions of Black people to barbecue. So let's start there. Like, where did where did the idea for you to write a book about this come from? Yeah, so um, it's definitely been a whirlwind because um, not only do I move in circles where I talk about um, these topics in, in food circles, politics, and faith circles. So I've been getting a lot of requests to you know kind of speak in the moment. So I, I am trying to figure out what my role in all of this is and how I can bring my gifts to bear. Um, But to the question of Black Smoke, so it really goes back to being traumatized by something I saw on the Food Network in 2004. So uh, there was a show called Paula Deen's Southern Barbecue. And at that point in my life, um, barbecue was a food I loved, but it wasn't, I didn't have a really strong passion for it. In fact, in growing up, I ate barbecue really only on three occasions, Memorial Day, July 4th, and Labor Day. It was it was uncommon for me to get barbecue outside of that context, just kind of the family barbecue. So I was like, uh, I'm, I, at that point, I knew I was going to write a book on Southern food. And so many African-American uh, restaurants have a barbecue option. And so many Black-owned barbecue joints have Southern food or soul food op, uh, sides and desserts that I thought, well, if I'm going to understand soul food better, I need to learn more about barbecue. So I saw the Paula Dean show. It's an hour-long show. And at the very end of the show, as the credits are rolling, I realized that there was not one African-American who was interviewed on air. 
there were black people in the background doing the work, but nobody was uh, interviewed to say something about barbecue in the South. So I just, I'm sitting there thinking, well, how does this happen? And then I thought, well, maybe I got it twisted. Maybe it was Paula Dean's Scandinavian barbecue sponsored by Alabama White Sauce. I didn't know what was going on. So I just started to investigate a little bit more. And then I just realized an underwhelming representation of African-Americans in barbecue media. And um, if anybody knows anything about barbecue history in this country, that is just really a whacked situation to be in because African-Americans for centuries have been the standard bearers for excellent barbecue. So I start, as I started to investigate other aspects of uh, media representation, I just saw that it was a chronic problem. And, you know, when as you were telling that story, Adrian, my mouth dropped open. Um, and I think that just really ties in to the movement that's happening that obviously started with the pandemic and the and the disproportionate number of black Americans who were facing really dire outcomes and that kind of crossing in to the issue of police killing black folks, which has then kind of seeped into that this idea of like black humanity, right? And and part of us being, you know, us having our humanity kind of on the main stage is this idea of representation. And I think for like the, I don't want to say the first time, but I've been in this food media world for about three years now, like really in it. And there had like, it, this feels like a real reckoning, like a real shakeup that's happening where people who might have before possibly made a television show or wrote a book or published some significant, you know, well-researched piece without citing any African-Americans with something where it was like, hey, this is actually part of the heart of the contribution of of Black folks in this country to American foodways. Whereas before that might have been overlooked, now people are taking notice. And people aren't just taking notice. People are speaking out about it and, and things are changing. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I think reckoning is a great word for it. Um, and, and it's not just food media, right? It's in so many aspects of now race in our society. I just find that this moment is different than other times because I, I just find that white people are actually paying more attention. Um, a light bulb has gone off for a lot of white people. And um, in coupling and coupled with that, as you point out, is we have uh, we have so many strong voices coming that um, people are being held accountable. So it's really wonderful to see. Um, and is if if it gets us to fairer, more inclusive, diverse representation, that's definitely a good thing. Now, on the other side of the equation, though, I do hope we have an economic justice part of this, so that diverse people who are making contributions. Um, get paid and get oh god stories right yeah absolutely like there is no there's no representation without that economic piece because otherwise it's not sustainable absolutely i mean there have been times when i'm like man I, i think i'm gonna have to call this quits because this is just not lucrative as fun as it is it's just not lucrative 
Exactly. And I think like the phenomenal thing about your book and where that piece fits into this broader conversation. Um, I mean, Adrian, this isn't your first book. This is your third book. Soul Food was your first book to which you won a James Beard Award. And then you wrote um, The President's Kitchen Cabinet. Did I get the name correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Recognizing the Black chef's um, contributions to essentially like you know, feeding, feeding the presidents and everyone that comes through that hollowed ground in one of the most, you know, sacred and renowned locations in our entire country. Whereas now your book, like the thing about books, which you know, because you've written multiple books, it takes a long time to get a book published. But the beautiful thing about your book is it has been in the works for so long. It's going to be out next spring. Whereas now, obviously, we are seeing we are seeing publishing houses take note that these stories are not only important, but that these books are selling. I mean, who would have thought the New York Times bestseller list would be full of books on race and racism and anti-racism? And that's what's happening right now. And it's it's across the board. It's definitely happening with Black authored cookbooks. So you are so perfectly positioned because your book has been in the works. You've already written the entire manuscript and it's going to be out next spring. So I think the beauty in your publisher um, picking up your book to tell this story, um, the timing I think is great. And I think, I mean, I'm just so excited for your book launch. Yeah. So um, it's been really interesting. So first of all, I'm just very grateful to University of North Carolina Press for believing in the project. And you know, one thing that I'm finding, now this is pre-current situation, I found that academic presses were much more willing to take a risk on um, Black authors who may not be well-known. That's certainly been my case. Um, Even after winning a James Beard Award, I don't get much love from commercial publishers. Uh, And even the barbecue book, only one other commercial publisher besides, you know, in addition to UNC Press, only one commercial publisher was interested in the book. I, I got, oh, this is interesting, but we don't think people are going to buy it. And I know for a fact that one of the publishers approached a white person to write the story of Black Barbecue. And to that writer's credit, that person said, no, I really think an African-American should write that story. So um, oh, it would have been wow. really interesting. To, yeah, whack, right? Wow. I, and, you know, I hope one day we we can all feel safe enough to to kind of speak our truths, which is what's happened with Bon Appetit. It's what's happened with the Southern Food Alliance. It's what's happened with the with the L.A. Times. And it's how they've had these crazy shake up power dynamics. But really, for us to kind of like tell the truth, we know that you you are you're not just putting your entire career on the line. You're accepting that you might not have a career after you hit that send button or tweet that tweet. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, um, to, to kind of round that thought out, I think it's important for white people to tell their stories in this sense. Uh, one of the, the two of the most dynamic threads on um, social media that I've seen recently is one pertinent to our discussion is what, what publishing paid me. So you're seeing all these stories of like kind of nobody white people getting six figures to write their books. And, you know, 
the difference between getting uh, let me just put it this way. I get six figures if you include the two zeros after the period. So, um, and that's not a high number. <laughs> so the difference between that and getting $300,000 to write your book is huge. Oh God, uh, that's huge because you can then, you can truly dedicate the time, the energy that it takes to write. You can actually hire help um, with parts of a book that need to be edited. Maybe there are recipes that need to be tested. And yep. um, it's so interesting you said that, Adrian, because, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night last night this morning because that's just where I am in life right now um, in this quarantine and whatever. And I picked up a book out of my suitcase because I'm at my parents' house and it was Beloved by Toni Morrison. I haven't read it yet. And it was it's like on my to-do list. And I was like, perfect, 3 a.m. I'm going to start this book. And I read the foreword and it was a new foreword, you know, since the book has come out. And Toni Morrison tells this story. She's like, you know, I, I quit my job. I was an editor at a publishing house, publishing house and I quit my job, even though I loved my job. And even though I knew I could both edit and write, she was like, it's crazy that people think you can't edit and write. People teach and create. And she makes this great argument. And she was like, but you know, the books on my list weren't selling, even though they were great books. And then she she continues the story and she's like sitting on the Hudson River. And essentially the main character from Beloved walks out of the river to her. And she she explains that even though she loved having a job as a writer, when she left that job, she created space within herself to receive this character for her most, I think one of her most notable and successful books, which is a long way to say what you just said. <laughs> when you get a big advance, <laughs> it can make a huge difference in the type of book you're able to write. Yeah, so all of my books, which is now, you know, I think about it, it's kind of remarkable. All of my books have been side hustles. Um, and I'm proud of my books, but I do, I do wonder, like, if I just had a time just to work on that book, um, full time, how that, how that book would have been different. So, you know, um, but, you know, academic presses, as much as they're willing to take a risk on authors, usually they can't offer as much money in terms of advances and they are structured. And the reason I think they do that is they're, they're structured to really be for academics. So the idea is that you have a job that pays you well enough and then you have that support kind of with grad students and others. So, you know, that's just the model they have. Um, and this is a little off topic, but another interesting thing on social media is um, a thread where basically white people have been sharing their experience with the police and how lenient they've been treated for things that black people are dying for. Um, you know, like basically doing whack stuff, cops showing up and say, oh, you crazy kids, don't do that again. And actually giving them rides home if they're drunk or whatever. Um, so I think that's illuminating. So I think we have to hear that side of the equation as well, um, which is not something yeah, people and, expect. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's an excellent point, Adrian. And I think that's why your Huffington Post piece was so powerful. And I recommend everyone go um, go to Adrian Miller's website where he has it linked, adrianemiller.com. Yes. Yeah. And um, and check out this article because, I mean, Adrian, you kind of make the case that like for us to really like <laughs> end racism or at least combat it, 
um, this is the, this has to be the work done by white people. And it just, it kind of, it hits different when you have, <laughs> when you have um, white people who are in this country, like currently the majority, but definitely like the reality is they are, they are the majority in the ways where there's power within the government, within, you know, who gets, who gets to say what, where, when. Um, so when, when that happens, that's when we can have real change. And that's what we're seeing right now. And I think that's why we're seeing results. And um, I do want to give a, a quick little, um, like I mentioned Bon Appetit, I mentioned Southern Foodways Alliance, I mentioned LA Times Food. Uh, for those who are not like keeping up with the, the very dynamic changes that are happening in food media, it seems by the day, um, we've discussed Bon Appetit on this podcast before, but how the editor-in-chief resigned after um, uh, her Twitter handle is Tammy ETC. Um, you know, she posted a photo of him and his wife where they appear to be dressed up as Puerto Ricans and brownface. And what was even, I think, more shocking, though, was earlier this week, John T. Edge of the Southern Foodways Alliance, um, there were calls for him to kind of step aside and make way for the next generation within this organization that really has a lot of power, might not be as well known outside of media professionals, but has a lot of power as to who has access to what. And I think that was even more significant because he is someone who is a pretty beloved professional figure, which kind of showed even, even though people like you and even though you've contributed in the past with this movement that's happening, what should the future look like? You know, and um, in the New York Times edit, uh, article about that, I don't know if you've read it, but... Um, I did. You did. Okay. So, one, you know, one quote that really struck me was Marcy Cohen Ferris, who said in these times, and I'm paraphrasing, but she says, this, these times don't call for reconciliation. They're calling for economics and justice to paraphrase. So um, I was thinking about my own work because I had kind of paired those two things. I thought if we have reconciliation, we can get to the weighty issues of, uh, you know, dealing with economics and injustice. And now I'm thinking, well, maybe they're not the same to your point. Mm -hmm. You can be somebody who uh, not everybody, but you know, a lot of people consider an ally and just the, the times today are calling for you to step aside because of whatever reason, in this case, being a white male running that organization. Um, so I've been, I've been thinking about that because John T. Um, has definitely been very affirming and supportive of my work and has helped, helped introduce me to a, a, wide, a wider audience than I probably would have had. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about my own culpability as well because um, I was a part of the organization for seven years in terms of leadership. So I, I want to write about this. So I'm still kind of tossing it over in my mind. But yeah, um, you know, the, the, whatever happens, um, I do hope that there is a succession plan and that somebody, whoever that person is, uh, is, in a is, is in a position to succeed and is equipped with the skills to succeed. Yeah. And, you know, that really also kind of segues into something really important. Obviously, um, you know, during this reckoning, we're like, oh, hey, um, 
you know, historically, these major publications or these very important organizations, they haven't had black people, brown people, black women, um, brown women, queer people, queer people, queer people of color specifically um, at the helm leading. And when like, let's let's assume Bon Appetit hires, you know, an editor in chief who 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 checks those boxes and. We do want to make sure that um, they will be set up to succeed and that they have the resources that they need. So I think I think that is a really excellent point. And I don't know what that looks like. And I don't even know if we are if we've thought about what that might look like. But um, yeah, I, I, Um, I go ahead. No, go ahead. I was gonna say I personally I have been. Um, I have been encouraged and inspired by a number of people who are just telling their honest experiences and sharing their stories only because I know that they are sharing them at great risk to their careers. And we all benefit. We all benefit in this industry when our industry it can be made a better, more inclusive place, especially us black people within this industry, because we've been on the other side of, of, um, of tokenism and of, you know, all of, all of those different things of the gatekeeping and, and that kind of thing. We've, we've been on the other side where we've had to kind of try to really fight through it and it's a slog and you get tired. Um, so I feel energized and I'm grateful to the work so many other people are doing right now. Yeah, no, it's an interesting time. So you know, we're we're in the um, we're in the phase of where we're trying to knock down these these systems, right? So um, there's so much energy that it takes to knock these things down and dismantle them that you know sometimes maybe we don't think about well, what's the process of reconstruction, right? What mm. what's on the other side that we have to build? And so I can see why people are so focused on dismantling because it's a, you know, it's a beast to dismantle. So, um, but I I hope that at some point people start thinking about what's on the other side. Um, Yeah. And that's a great, that's a really great point. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Adrian Miller. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for those of us running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, which means the way they shop for food is changing. I've seen the shift happen at Burlap & Barrel, the single origin spice company that I founded with my friend Ori Zohar. Because we have an online store and we can ship orders, it's a safe and healthy way for home cooks to get spices delivered right to their doors. Now, people are more curious than ever about the ethics and sustainability around food, and it's a great opportunity for us to talk about Burlap & Barrel's social mission while growing our business so that we can continue to support our partner farmers around the world. If you run a restaurant, farm, or other small food business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is Square Online Store. Let's you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep your customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all of your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. 
Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash why food. Hi, and welcome back to Why Food. We are here with our guest, Adrian Miller, who is a James Beard award-winning cookbook author, food historian, and I think overall food and culture commentator. Um, Adrian, you are also a former attorney, and I would like to know a little bit about how it is and why it is that you decided to leave the law and how did food pull you in? Yeah, I prefer the term recovering instead of, um, but anyway, um, <laughs> just kidding. I know you would get that joke. Uh, so what happened is, uh, you know, for much of my life, I thought I was going to be in politics. And so I thought going to a law firm, practicing law, becoming a partner, and then transitioning to politics would be my path. But the problem was I just hated law. So um, I was in a big law firm doing employment discrimination law. So I was representing the man against all these people of color, just wasn't feeling it. Got to the point where I was singing spirituals in my office. So um, I made a transition to politics and um, it was really after working in the Clinton White House, um, I still was interested in a political career and I was trying to get back to Colorado from Washington DC, but the job market was really slow. I was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even going to tell you. (laughs) And I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to the bookstore and I got a book by a guy named John Edgerton called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History. He's uh, one of the founders of the Southern Foodways Alliance. And in that book, he wrote that the tribute to African-American achievement in cookery has yet to be written. So I thought that was really interesting. I just emailed him out of the blue because the book was about 10 years old. And I said, Mr. Edgerton, you wrote this a long time ago. Do you still think this is true? And he said, yeah, you know, for the most part, nobody's taken on the full story. So then with no qualifications except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking at some, that started me on my journey. And and I love how organic that was. And I also love that you identified or you received someone else identifying um, essentially a hole that needed to be filled because I think like in a way, like being an author, being a writer, being a media professional, um, when you're not attached to a publication or an organization, you're an entrepreneur, right? And it's like, in order for you, I think, to achieve the most success, you want to do something that hasn't been done yet, or at least do it in a whole new way. And I think you have really achieved that. Um, So thank you for sharing that. And I mean, you also mentioned earlier... And I, from what I recall, this is your, your day job, but you work uh, with a faith-based organization, which is really interesting in this exact moment of us being in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, which is um, there is this faith element of the pandemic becoming politicized. Yeah. Can you just maybe tell us a little bit about, or help me connect these dots? Cause I know they're there. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I do work for something called the Colorado council of churches. And that organization is essentially ma- ma- mainly made up of the mainline Protestant denominations. But the idea is that uh, churches get to know each other outside of their um, denominational lines and then build relationships. And then we build on those relationships 
to do social justice work. So um, racial equity and reconciliation have been some of the main um, passions that I brought to that job. But even in a faith context, it, this work is hard. Um, and I'll give you an example. So, you know, you know, I'm passionate with food. So I thought, well, I think faith and food might be a great way to bring people together. So one of the biggest events that I had was to do an interracial uh, church potluck. We got white, predominantly white churches, predominantly black churches together to um, come, come to a space, bring food from your tradition, sit down at a table with someone you don't know, and then just talk. And then at the end of that conversation, at the end of the meal, uh, talk about ways that your churches might be able to work together to get to know each other. And um, before that, the black pastors are like, look, this is not going to work. These white churches don't want to do the hard work of reconciliation. They just want us to show up on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend and preach so they can check a box. Mm. And I said, no, I think we're in a different place because all of these other things that happened, uh, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Garner. And then actually, even though I had the event already in the works, the, the murder at the Charleston Church, the AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, had happened. So I, I argued to these black pastors, yeah, I think we're in a different moment. So 200 people showed up. We only got three pairs of churches going. But I checked in with one of the white pastors a few weeks after that. And sure enough, she said, yeah, we've been doing some stuff with the black church. But um, my congregants, and they're white, keep asking me, why do we keep doing stuff with that church? So that just plays into wow. what the black pastors were saying. Wow. Um, I mean... <laughs> That's uh that that's really interesting because in so many ways I I mean I really think like the strength of our country in many ways comes from like the real diversity and like multiplicity of cultures within the country and and throughout our country's um our country's history and and all of our contributions. And I think we we see how that can play out um, academically. We can we see how that can play out in media. How like I mean, we really we know that like diversity is good. It's good for business. It makes things more. Um, it just makes things more real. I think it makes things better. Yet, like within churches, that is something that is that we just see so much less. Yeah, and it's just, it's just a real, um, I think part of it is the church can be such a powerhouse for good. Um, but I think, you know, you've got people, there's a lot of stuff going on. But just real quickly, you've got pastors who I think are inclined to preach about racial justice and to actually do stuff. And I have to say, since, since, since um, all of this has happened in the last few months, especially the killing of George Floyd, I, I, I will say that more churches than usual uh, and I mean, white churches are uh, asking me what kinds of things they can do. So it was, it's been a wake up moment for some. But, you know, pastors are afraid of splitting their congregation because church is one of the few places left where you can get people from all walks of life coming into a community. So they don't want to, you know, pit the liberals against the conservatives. Uh, and then usually the people who are the biggest donors in a church are wealthy conservatives. And those people will withhold their money if they think you're talking about racial justice or you seem anti-police too much. Um, and I, anecdotally, I have pastors who have told me that they mention the words Black Lives Matter in church and people just get up and leave. So if you go to church, you know what a huge breach of protocol that is. 
Um, so, you know, a lot of the problem is the people in the pews uh, who don't well, want, who want to you want to live in a bubble. They don't want, they don't want the outside world disturbing that bu bubble. Now I can only speak to the Christian tradition because that's what I'm a part of. But um, you know, what I tell these people is, okay, the dude you profess to follow would have been all about talking about this moment. And I mean, and I think, which is really, really interesting. Um, like the black church has also been like the hub for these political movements within the black community. So, um, and like, I mean, right now I attend a church that, that the pastors are white. It's in Harlem. The congregation, um, kind of looks like what the population of Harlem looks like right now. Maybe like, you know, 80, 85% black and brown people, and then maybe 15 or 20% white people. It literally looks like the neighborhood it's in. Um, and it's so interesting because when something happens in the community, I go to church and I think, oh, we're going to talk about it because that's what I'm used to. I grew up in, a, you know, in the AME church, which is African Methodist Episcopalian. And um, I'm just used to growing up with like, some, if something happens in the world, like we go to church and we can commune or we can grieve together or, you know, we can strategize. So it's, it is very interesting, but um. I, uh, I, I kind of, oh, go ahead. I am, I, I am AME. That's my faith tradition as well. So we would love to have you back at some point. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure my mother would love that. Um, Adrian, like any, any final thoughts you want to leave us with um, or any, anything you want to like leak about your book that you want to tell us to get us excited about it? Yeah, unfortunately, my publisher doesn't like me to do that stuff too much. So, um, but <laughs> I, will, I will share one story. I have the story in my book. Um, it's not a travel log, so I think that's been done. Um, this book is really about how Native Americans really uh, their culinary traditions are the foundation of barbecue. How Europeans then fuse that to become something new, which is really what we understand as barbecue today. And then how all of that culinary knowledge gets transferred to African-Americans who become the standard bearers for barbecue for a couple centuries until the late 1990s, until the 1990s. And then you see this shift towards white dudes making barbecue. And so it's really just to um, show that story and then also to look at different subcultures of, of African-American barbecue cultures. So I talk about the restaurateurs and the entrepreneurs, you know, even the brothers and sisters who are in a parking lot or on the roadside making barbecue. I talk about church barbecue. I talk about what what is unique about African-American barbecue in terms of how it plays out in our culture. I look at competition barbecue. Um, I do a whole chapter on sauce because, you know, in the black barbecue tradition, it, for a lot of people, the sauce is the most important thing. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the sauce is, is a whole cultural expression. <laughs> Yep. But, you know, one, just to give you a tidbit or teaser, uh, you know, I have a story of an of an enslaved woman who was doing barbecue in the 1830s, telling dudes what to do. And she made enough money where she bought her freedom. Wow. That's a, I yeah. mean, and that's incredible. And and that I think kind of circles back and ties up nicely what we were talking about, about food and the power of food, but also the importance of being paid for your contributions to food. 
Yep. Oh, yeah. You know what? I might have to put that in my book. I like the way you wrap that up. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Look, Adrian, thank you so much for being on. Where can we find you? You are like an avid tweeter. You have a whole Twitter thing going on. Tell our guests where they can find you. So uh, the best way to find me is Soul Food Scholar on multiple platforms. So I have a Soul Food Scholar fan page on Facebook. Uh, and my handle on Twitter and Instagram is Soul Food Scholar. And then my website, uh, you know, there's uh, two two ways to get to my website. But if you do soulfoodscholar.com, you'll find me. And I have a YouTube channel, Soul Food Scholar channel, that I really need to populate more. But those are uh, ways to find me. And okay, you can guys. order my books through my website. And, uh, you know, just go to soulfoodscholar.com about my books. And I'll send you an autographed copy. And even if I don't know you, I'm happy to sign it however you want to. So if you want me to write, I couldn't have done it without you. I'll do that. <laughs> I love that. Okay, Adrian, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you can find us on social at Y Food Podcast. You can find me at Foodie in New York or my website, foodieinnewyork.com. Ethan was not able to be with us today, but you can find him via his spice company, burlap and barrel which is at burlap and barrel across social and his website and we will see you all next week bye why food is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content subscribe to our newsletter Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.